Hey everybody and thanks for coming back to Serial Zombie Mom. Uh, today is part two of Marilyn Monroe um, and today is really just going to kind of focus on her career and her many love affairs. Um, I'll highlight a couple of people that were you know supposedly rumored and and things like that um, and just talk a little bit about you know how she became the starlet she she was. Now this episode's probably not going to be as crazy with all the information, but I do feel like it's important that, you know, as we all know about a couple of the little movies she was in, um, she was always kind of portrayed as the dumb blonde. So what I wanted to do is just kind of talk about from the time she was discovered up until, um, her last, you know, year or so. Um, so what we already know and what, what I talked about in the last episode was more about her early life. It was more about, what she had endured. You know, a lot of people didn't really realize without doing the research, you know, you don't hear about those types of things, but um, you didn't realize so much that she was an orphan. You don't realize by looking at these beautiful pictures that she could have had such a hard life growing up. But really, when you go back after knowing this and you look at some of those photos, you see that sadness in her eyes. You see the understanding in her eyes, you know, regardless of what what character she's portraying, you know, but all of her photos, you see this, you know, it was not her trying to be sultry. It was just this look. She had been through it. She had been through some things. So, you know, knowing that she had been over-sexualized by the time she was, you know, sometime between seven and ten, um, you know, and then again, as she got a little bit older, and then of course, you know, married off at 16. So that's where I'm going to kind of jump back in um, and talk about how she was discovered. Okay. I mentioned in the last episode, there was a man named David Conover who came in and he was actually a photographer. Now, as we know, her husband, James Daughtry, was working as a merchant marine. So while he's working as a merchant marine, he's sent overseas, you know, she's a bored little housewife, you know. A, a lot of the other women were having to work because the men were away. So it made more sense to her, you know, to go and work just like all the, all the other ladies. Well, she was, you know, pretty young, uh, 17, 18. So she goes and takes this job, you know, at... Uh, a factory called Radio Plane Company, making airplane parts and uh, parachutes, um, you know, things like that. So this man, uh, this photographer, David Conover, comes in because, you know, he was sent by the Army Air Force, um, their uh, first motion picture unit, to take morale boosting pictures of the females working back home and what they were doing to help their troops. And the fact that, you know, all these little areas and all these little jobs were benefiting the troops. Now it's 1944 and Norma Jean is 18 years old. Okay. She's never really been one to, you know, break out of her shell. She was always a very shy person. You know, interviews with her, her first husband, James, or, or Jimmy, she called him. 
you know, he would talk about how, you know, she was just really, really shy. She was very timid. She was very insecure. She had a lot of issues. You see all that through some of, um, you know, it, it makes sense to what the type of person that she was once you see more of this information. It's it's kind of crazy. Um, but anyway, so this David Conover comes in to take these photos. Now, he had never... Um, used her photos um he he took all these photos we we see them now like her this beautiful beautiful young girl um but he he told her initially he was like you know you're the prettiest girl here this is you know you need to be doing more than just this because you're the hottest chick in the joint you know i mean it was just he was taken by her he was absolutely just mesmerized by her. Now, he told her that she was a natural, told her that she should model, and she was surprised by this. She was surprised but excited because she always thought, well, you know, I didn't think I was pretty enough for that, but, you know, if I can model, maybe I can get into acting. Maybe I can get into something like that. So, he mentions, you know, these few photos that he had taken, and they went and did more, too, like, you know, they became friends and he went and took more photos of her and you'll see some some different ones when you google David Conover photos um you know so you'll see the type of work that she did and that she was the most beautiful and most vivacious woman he had ever seen now in 1945 she quit working in the factory and began modeling for Conover and his friends now James didn't want her to do this he told her no you know, stick to what you were doing, you know, I, you know, I agree, you're beautiful, and, you know, you could, you could do this, but I'd rather be able to come home to my wife, <laughs> you know, I would rather be with you, um, you know, I don't, I don't like, he didn't want a lot of people gawking at her, I, I imagine, um, so he didn't want her to do this, so she moved on by her herself. She did it all. He is, again, overseas. Apparently, he had gotten some kind of a Dear John letter stating, you know, look, they had, I mean, they had discussed it. There's, um, some of the interviews with him, he mentions how, you know, they had, they had talked back and forth about how she wanted to do it. He said he wouldn't, he didn't agree. Um, and he was like, look, you know, it's, divorce wasn't really on the picture and he wasn't, wasn't going to divorce her. And back then, you know, you, you couldn't, um, you couldn't divorce as easily. So, you know, eventually she got a Dear John letter and, and she took off and decided to join the Blue Book Modeling Agency in August of 1945. Um, I, I don't remember exactly what year, uh, she and Jimmy actually divorced. I think I might have it in here somewhere, but, you know, he really loved her. He really did. And he said, you know, had he never joined the Merchant Marines, she would still be Mrs. Jimmy Daughtry. So, you know, you really see, like, he loved her. He really loved her. And, you know, while this this marriage was just kind of thrown at them, like, here's an option, he did. He fell in love with her. So, uh, they knew that with her figure, because she was very, very curvy, um, that she was more pinup 
than high fashion. So when she goes in and she starts working for the Blue Book Modeling Agency, they're initially like, all right, you're going to do pinup stuff. You know, you're the curvy vivacious that all the men want. I, I don't think you're as good for high fashion because she was so curvy. And she was more used more in the men's magazines, obviously, for obvious reasons. Uh, and she even tried to make herself more employable by straightening and dyeing her natural curly auburn hair blonde. Now, I will say, when you see those first initial photos of her, her hair looks very, very dark. But I will say there are photos where you see, like, these little highlights of, like, a reddish tone in her hair. And that was her natural color. But I think when this bleaching process um, to, to go to blonde really made that red show up. So there, you're going to find some images of her where she's a redhead. And I got to say, she was a gorgeous redhead. You know, I can't say I, mean, I am partial to a redhead. But, you know, I, I think she was dropped in gorgeous as a redhead. And I think that was just as, as she started to um, bleach and dye her hair, her hair blonde. Um, now, she worked her absolute ass off. And wanted to be the most sought-after model. Like, she really worked her ass off. She did mention, however, that the guys loved her red hair. And she'd get a kick off the re the reactions from them from time to time. Because, you know, they weren't used to seeing redheads in publications and, and stuff as often. You know, it was a little more rare to see. Because everybody wanted that dark, sultry brunette. Or they wanted... You know, that ditzy blonde. You know, it was just kind of nothing in the middle. But they loved, loved, loved her red hair. Now, the change to blonde actually was just to make her more desirable. After all, blondes were supposed to have more fun, right? Or do they? You know, I, I gotta say, I went blonde once. Uh, eh. You know, it was what it was. Um, Didn't seem to have more fun. You know, I don't see what the difference is, you know. But... That's how they looked at things back then. Now, by early 1946, Norma Jean had made the cover of over 33 publications and was often used, um, <coughs> had often used the pseudonym Jean Norman instead of Norma Jean. Then she signed a contract with an acting agency in June of 1946. She didn't do really well there. The unfortunate thing was is that she would go in and do these interviews and she would go talk to people and just she just wasn't what they wanted. They were like, you know what, you, you've got some potential, but there's others that are better than you. So she get, has an unsuccessful interview with Paramount, but gets a six-month contract with 20th Century Fox. So she couldn't go to RKO Pictures. That was going to be her next stop. If, if she didn't get signed with 20th, 20th Century Fox, she was going to go to RKO where she knew that someone would sign her. Especially, you know, because she was gorgeous. They, they knew that they could at least put her in, you know, the background. They knew that they could at least put her in, like, these little side roles. So they knew that there was something... That she would have. Now, Daryl Zanuck, who was a Fox executive, thought she'd do really, really well. 
you know, he immediately was taken with her. He immediately thought that this was something that, you know, he should do for her. Um, but screen tester Ben Lyon and Norma Jean come up with this name of Marilyn Monroe. Because they're like, you know, Norma Jean Baker is the girl next door. Norma Jean is the girl next door. It is not a starlet name. So we got to come up with something that's going to be more dramatic. So Marilyn, the name Marilyn was picked out by Ben Lyon. Um, because he was reminded of a Broadway star that he had actually dated once in, in the past named Marilyn Miller. Also, Marilyn, I believe, was her grandmother's middle name. So she loved the name. She was like, okay, Marilyn's, Marilyn's perfect. That's beautiful. And Monroe was her mother's maiden name. So she was like, you know what? It still has to do with me. It's just, you know, not the born, the name I was born with. So sure, let's go for it. Marilyn Monroe. Now in September of 1946 is when she divorced Jimmy Doherty. So I did have that here in my notes. Um, you know, because he was against the career, as I mentioned. But again, in these interviews that he had given many, many years later, he's, he, you can hear it in his voice. You can see it on his face. He's, he was still, he still loved her. The only reason they were divorced is because she, you know, made it so. Now, the first six months that she spent at Fox, you'd think that, you know, oh, well, she'd be getting small acting roles. She'd be doing all this. Nope. They didn't do any of that for her. They spent the first six months teaching her how to act, you know, teaching her how to sing and dance, and having her observe the film process. Because you can't go into it in, and expect you're just going to walk in and be a starlet. You have to learn about the system. You have to learn about, you know, the process of everything in order for things to get done. Now, she renewed her contract in February of 1947 and gets her first roles. They were bit parts, things in the background, maybe some one-liners. There's actually one in particular where you see this beautiful blonde girl walk behind, you know, the stars of the show. And she just turns and says hello. And that's about it. Um, it's really interesting to see kind of where she got her start. You know, a lot of people start off in little bit roles. So it's it's interesting to see that she was no different than everybody else. Now, she was also enrolled in acting school where she stated that she was absolutely hooked from the moment she realized what real acting really was. Unfortunately, the teachers didn't find her outgoing enough, stating that she was too shy and insecure to make it in the business. That is one thing that we will see continually is that she was very shy and insecure regardless of what showed on the pictures and what showed in film. Now, due to this, <coughs> Fox did not renew her contract again in August of that year. So feeling let down and at a loss, she returned to modeling and some odd jobs at, jobs at film studios to keep her foot in the door with that community. She was so determined to become something that she actually kept going to acting school. 
even had roles in plays, you know, just something to kind of exercise that acting bug that she had. Now, she knew she had to get in with the bigwigs. And she had to start breaking out of her shell by networking with people. She would visit offices of multiple producers, befriending a gossip columnist named uh, Sidney Skolsky, I believe it is, and even entertained influential male guests at studio functions. Now, see, there would be parties where the elites would just bring in these girls who were pretty. They were, you know, they wanted to be models. They wanted to be something. So they'd just bring them in and let them hang around like decorations. You know, they do this to keep, to, to have all the guys, you know, have their cigars or cigarettes lit. They would, these girls would refill glasses and just fluff their egos. And I imagine that is not all that they did. You know, unfortunately in these days, women a lot of the times fell prey to the casting couch. You know, we hear that as a joke. You you know, you think casting couch, you initially, you know, in these days, you think of, you know, these stupid fake porn, you know, things that come up. But, but no, that's kind of how it was back, back then. It was like, oh, you want to, you want to have this role? What are you willing to do for it? And unfortunately, we see this happened a lot in the past and unfortunately still was happening and, and is still happening. So... We have to be, you know, and tell tell these young girls to, to be very careful. And, and all actors have been subjected to something along these lines. Whether it's, okay, well, you know, are you willing to do nude? Are you willing to do this? Are you willing to do that? Back then, what were you willing to do to make it? You want it that bad? What are you willing to do? So these girls would be pulled into, into these parties as decoration, as props, as... Um, toys for the elites. And this is where she actually meets a couple of other stars um, and really starts to, you know, network herself. She does, keeps doing this and gets the attention of Joseph Schneck, or Schenk, sorry, and who is a Fox executive. They formed a friendship and even an intimate relationship because, again... You know, how do you want to get it? You want to get it? All right, then you got to get in my bed. You know, that's kind of just the things that happen. So she was listed as one of his little girlfriends. Now, Joseph Shank was friends with the head executive over at Columbia Pictures and was able to say, and I quote, there's this girl who really has something and you have to look at her. With this, Harry Kahn actually signs her to Columbia in March of 1948 in order to... To, to stick out, her mo- um, she modeled her own look after that of Rita, Rita Hayworth. But it wasn't just... I, I want to think there was more, more than just Rita Hayworth. I believe it was... Um, oh, crud. I can't think of her name. I'll, I'll, it'll probably pop out at me later. Um, but anyway, she, she models her own look after, after Rita Hayworth goes even more blonde to this platinum blonde, okay? Uh, Natasha Latesse was her acting coach, and she's brought in to work with her. They were inseparable. She worked with her for years, and they even actually lived together for a little while. Worked with her until 1955. 
Now, there's even rumor that there was some kind of relationship going on there. Now, Natasha Latess would get jealous of her and her relationships with men and where are you? Where are you going out? Who did you spend the time with? And she was like, she thought she was my husband. You'll find that in some of the the interviews where Marilyn even says, you know, Natasha thought she was my husband for a while. Like it was, it was a ridiculous relationship. Now with Columbia Pictures, she only had one lead role. And this was a chorus girl in Ladies of the Chorus in 1948, which was released that October. Unfortunately, Ladies of the Chorus was not a huge success. Um, she then screen tested for Born Yesterday in 1950, but lost it to Judy Holiday. Um, she wound up having an, another unrenewed contract in September, just before the release of that Ladies of the Chorus. Uh, but now's the time for things to start taking off. I do have to note here, um, that with, with this and all of our experiences with the producers and, and executives and, you know, we re revisit that idea of the fluffing. Um, these individuals at the parties and whatnot, and and that isn't all she was doing, obviously. I, I mentioned already how, how there were other things going on. Um, you know, she, along with many of the other potential act actresses of the day, um, had to deal with that casting couch, had to deal with the predatory men in, the st in showbiz. You know, and, you know, due to this, um... And due to her experiences in her past being over-sexualized and the things that she had gone through as a child, the only relationship she was used to with old, was with older men. Powerful men. Or important men. And this was disastrous to her mental health as they only used and abused her, um, taking advantage of this supposed need that she had to satisfy these men. You know, when you've been through something like that, that's all you know is to satisfy men. Unfortunately, the only thing that she knew to do was to use that sexuality. Now, she even went back to modeling again when she wasn't renewed by Columbia. When all this fell through, she was desperate. She was trying to make her rent. You know, here she was, you know, busting her ass to try and make it. And she was, she was pretty low on her rent. So, she actually even agreed to some commercials for Pap's Beer. Um, there were, you know, car commercials. You can find these things just Googling them. But she did these little, little bitty roles. She even posed at one point for the famous John, John Bumgarth calendars where she appears nude. Now, I think his name was, was it Tom Kelly? Something Kelly. <clears throat> Apparently, she ran into him one time. Her car broke down. She had a flat. She was on her way to a rehearsal or or something or a, an audition. And this Mr. Kelly sees her on the side of the road. And he, he stops and, and says, you know, you're really beautiful. You should pose for me sometime. And here's five bucks. Get yourself a cab and go get to your thing. You know, this happened probably at the start of her career, okay? So when he comes to her at some point, and, and everybody's been asking her to, to appear nude, she's saying, no, 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 telling everybody no. And then all of a sudden, she finally says, so nobody's going to see me? You're not gonna, they're not going to know it's me? Are you sure? 
And he says, no. She remembered him being so nice, so she was like, all right, fine, I'll do it. She really needed her rent. So she had done topless or bikini photos before for people and was comfortable with her body. She even made jokes at this point about this nude calendar spread. When people would ask her what she was wearing, she'd answer them, Chanel number five. Then they'd ask again, no, 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 what did you have on? And she'd answer again, just the radio. You know, and she'd laugh in an interview later saying, you know, well, it was true. I didn't want to lie to them. So she had a great sense of humor, absolutely wonderful sense of humor. Now, the William Morris Agency was quite well known, a very well known modeling agency, known as the quote unquote greatest in show business. Now, the vice president at the time was John Hyde. John was was at a record club one day and sees Marilyn being photographed by a pinup photographer, Bruno Bernard. He was about 30 years older than her, John was, um, and was immediately taken by her beauty and charm. He was the defining force behind her success. Without having this man in her life, she never would have become the starlet she was. They had a really great friendship, and she even at one point became his mistress, and he even leaves his wife and kids for her. Um, and, and, but she rejected, you know, becoming his wife and she was like, no, I'm not going to, you know, I, I got to focus on my career for a while. So he was like, all right, let me see what I can do. I'm going to help you do everything you can and try to make you happy. So he leaves his wife and kids and he calls everywhere, calls everybody he knows, pulls all the stops, you know, every favor he can think of to get her a chance. Okay. Now, when the agencies or film companies would say, ah, you know, we've already seen that blonde, you know, eh, she's just like all the others, Hyde would say, no, 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 you need to go back and look at her again. You really have to go back and her look at her again. There's something about her that she's, she's going to be really special. You know, he made it seem as if they were going to miss out on something if they didn't go ahead and do it. So at this time, he secures her a few small parts that would shape her career as she landed two small roles that would put her on everyone's mind. These two roles were All About Eve and The Asphalt Jungle, both in 1950. They were only small parts, but everyone wanted to know who the hell that beautiful bombshell was, that blonde bombshell. Now with this, Hyde was able to actually negotiate a seven-year contract for Marilyn with 20th Century Fox. Now, keep in mind, all she was getting before was six months at a time. Ah, lad, let's try her out. Let's see what we think. But this time, he got a seven-year contract for her. Unfortunately, within a few days of her signing this contract, John Hyde dies of a heart attack. Apparently, he had been sick for a while. And she knew it. Like, everybody knew he was a little sick. He was having heart heart issues or health issues. Now, this broke her heart because she was forever grateful for what he did for her. You know, she did care a lot about him, and he did everything he could to make sure she could become something. Now, on to 1951. 1951, she had three movies where she was cast essentially as a sexy ornament. However, she was being noticed and... Comments were being made about her, and she was being brought up, you know, as 
a really great up-and-coming actress. At this point, she was getting thousands of fan letters each week. And during this time, she even had a few short romances with different individuals, such as um, director Elia Kazan, uh, director Nicholas Ray, and actors like Yul Brynner, Peter Lawford. Um, You know, there are rumors that she was in lesbian affairs with, like, Joan Crawford and Marlena Dietrich and, um, you know, some of these other, other starlets and that there were relationships there, you know, wouldn't surprise me back in those days, honestly. Um, you know, and Peter Lawford becomes a really, really, really good friend to Marilyn, okay? And if you've heard the name Peter Lawford before, it's probably mostly because he was married to one of the Kennedys' sisters. I think it was Patricia he was married to. So, yes, Kennedy, JFK, that's exactly who I'm talking about. Now, in early 1952, she meets Joe DiMaggio. She's really depressed. You know, he's retiring from baseball. Um, and this friend of hers knew him and was like, you know what? I'm going to fix you guys up. He fixed, fixed him up kind of unbeknownst to them. She didn't even know really who he was because she didn't, hadn't even seen a baseball. She didn't know what it looked like. Like she didn't pay attention to that kind of shit. So she didn't really know anything about him. They go on this, this first date and, and afterwards all she talks about is how wonderful he was and how, uh, what of a, what a family man he was and, and what a wonderful guy. So it was around this time that it was revealed that she was posed, she had posed nude for the nude nude calendar in 1949. And she revealed at this time that, look, you know, she got ahead of the the bullshit because they were going to come in and try and ruin her because here she was this, you know, starting to become something. And she was like, look, you know, hey, I was about to be on the streets. You know, what, what the hell else was I supposed to do? I had to make some money. And this was the way for it was for it to happen in order for me to pay my bills. You know, hey, I did what I had to do. Whatever. This is what everybody likes about me. I showed it to them. So she got ahead of all the publicity and all of the the repercussions that would have come in those days. And, you know, justified what she did. And she was the one that started to normalize the fact that, you know, women have bodies. Who gives a shit? You know, so this gives them sympathy, and they actually it actually piques their interest more in the films that she starred in. Fox then releases three albums. Clash, Clash by Night, Don't Bother to Knock, where she played a mentally disturbed babysitter, and We Are Not Married. Those three movies were used in order to capitalize on the scandal and the public interest. Now, it was at this point that Marilyn became known as an absolute sex symbol. In We Are Not Married, her role was a beauty pageant contestant who secretly who created solely, was created solely, excuse me, to present her in two bathing suits so they could show off her body. Now, in Howard Hawks' Monkey Business, which was another movie she did, she acted opposite Cary Grant. Now, the thing about this was she idolized Cary Grant. She would joke around that that was her father. Like, when she was little, she had the joke that that was her father. 
Now, she played a secretary who was kind of dumb, a childish blonde, and innocently unaware of the havoc her sexiness causes around her. Um, she did other other movies, one in uh, Hen- O. Henry's Full House, where she plays a sex worker. Um, Monroe added to her reputation as a new sex symbol uh, with publicity stunts that year. She wore a very revealing dress uh, when acting as Grand Mar- Marshal, excuse me, at the Miss America pageant parade. Um, she even goes as far as telling a, a gossip columnist that she normally didn't wear any underwear. So, again, scandal, scandal. Like, it was just stuff to to get people talking about her. Now, whether those things were true or not, you know, but she knew what she needed to do beca- to become the it girl in 1952. Now, during this period, Monroe uh, actually gained the reputation for being pretty difficult to work with. Which would kind of worsen her career as it progressed. Now, she was often late or didn't show up at all, couldn't remember lines, would demand several retakes before she was satisfied with her performance. And her dependence on her acting coaches, Natasha Latesse and Paula Strasberg, also irritated directors. Now, here's the thing about that time. Back then, they would have these supposed doctors on set who were really no mu- no more than glorified nurse practitioners or, you know, pharmacists, and they'd be on set. And, oh, well, you know, you're having trouble sleeping? Here, take this. They wake up in the morning groggy. Oh, well, take this. So, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people had these de- dependencies on uppers and downers to get them through the day. Now, Monroe's problems had been attributed to a combination of perfectionism, low self-esteem, and stage fright. She disliked her lack of control on film sets and never experienced similar problems during photo shoots in which she had to um, actually... She had more say over her performance and could be more spontaneous instead of having to follow the strict uh, strict script. To alleviate her anxiety, her chronic insomnia, she got as I said, you know, hooked on pills. She was using barbiturates, um, amphetamines, alcohol, you know, she would swig them back with a, with a glass of champagne. Um, and all this just exacerbated her problems. Although she didn't become severely addicted until about 1956, she was bullied by her directors and her actors, fellow actors alike. There were three movies in 1953 as well, where some of the movies these really launched her stardom. Yes, they might have taken a little bit longer to to make because she had these issues, but, you know, she busted her ass when she was on set. Niagara was a movie where she was a femme fatale scheming to murder her husband. In this one, she was way over-sexualized, covered by only a sheet or a towel in many of the scenes. The next movie, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. This is the epitome. This is the one movie that people think of and they see her in the iconic hot pink dress with the gloves. And this is where she did the, perf- the performance of Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. This really cemented her on-screen persona as the quintessential dumb blonde. She appeared, um, appeared to appeal 
to both male and female audience for different reasons. Men obviously loved her because of her looks. Women loved her because she was relatable. So there were a lot of, um, you know, things about her that people just, you know, were drawn to. Now, Monroe's position as a leading sex symbol was confirmed in, in December of 1953 when Hugh Hefner gets the rights to some of her photos and puts her in Playboy. She was featured on the cover and as a centerfold. Now, she did not consent to this publication. She was not okay with that. I mean, granted, everybody had seen the photos already, so at this point, she didn't really give a shit. But that was not... He purchased the rights, so he had the rights to do whatever the hell he wanted to it, whether she wanted him to do it or not. Now, the cover cover image was a photo taken of her at the Miss America pageant parade in 1952. And the centerfold was one of those nude photos from the calendar shoots. This was not something that she trusted... And she had issues with with being considered a floozy all the time. She was so tired of people looking at her and, and, and automatically thinking she was that dumb blonde. You know, she'd go out in in public, you know, with no makeup on and, you know, just comfortable and whatever. And you'd get people coming up to her, you know, oh, yeah, 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 do the Maryland, do the Maryland. She's like, oh, my God, you know. So they'd badger her and she'd turn around, she'd put some red lipstick on, and then she'd turn around, turn around and change her voice and start doing the little breathy voice, and, and everybody ate it up. Now, her marriage to Joe DiMaggio uh, was in January of 1954, and amidst the time that she was fighting, th- she was fighting for higher pay as her contract had not been renewed since 1950. <laughs> Excuse me. Unfortunately, they fought not to put her in any, any serious roles. So, she wanted to be taken seriously as an actress. She didn't want to be looked at as a floozy. Now, after she marries Joe DiMaggio, they go on this amazing honeymoon to Japan and Korea. But she's roped into, you know, hey, you're going to be over here. Why don't you do a show for the USO? So, she's like, all right, fine. She gets over there. They realize, you know, Joe DiMaggio was like, this baseball star. It was this big thing about um, baseball over in Asia at that time. And he was like the big star. But he realized at this point when they got off the plane that it wasn't him they were hooping and hollering for. for. It was her. So they go over there. She becomes part of this USO show for the troops and sings songs for over 60,000 U.S. Marines over four days. It was said that DiMaggio was surprised and really jealous of the attention that she was getting as opposed to him. So, the fall she started, um, that fall she started work on a movie called The Seven Year Itch. Another iconic movie that a lot of people think of where they think of that iconic white dress with the subway scene and and it pushing the dress up over, you know. Well... DiMaggio was so upset about this display because this was his wife. It was reported that he may have even actually beat her up after this. You know, that he was so pissed about her showing herself off. Because here he was, just this, you know, normal guy, 
you know, yeah, he was in the limelight too, but, you know, he wanted a wife <laughs> to be a wife, you know, not, not to be a sex symbol. So here's the thing about that scene. They had done multiple, multiple takes. Well, when they bring the dress into her, um, and then they're like, okay, well, it's this white dress, so obviously you need to wear white panties. So she puts everything on, and then she's like, okay, well, the lights are going to show. She lifts her dress and looks in the mirror, and she's like, oh, shit, somebody get me an extra pair of panties. Because they were so sheer, you could see through her panties. So she put on an extra pair. So when you see all this, just know when you see that photo or when you watch the movie and you see that, she was having to wear multiple pairs of panties to try and hide her bits and pieces. Now, when you were on set, which Joe DiMaggio and some friends of his, you know, happened to be there that day, um, he's standing there watching this thing go down and take after take after take after take of her dress flying up around her. And he couldn't, he couldn't stand it. What she didn't see at that time, and what he did and a lot of other people on set, was that with all the lights from production, you could see through the two layers of her panties. It didn't really leave any, you know, imagination there. So he was livid. So... After this, like, they obviously are having a lot of problems. After she and photographer Milton Green, who was supposedly another one of her lovers, uh, founded their own production company. Now, there are rumors of her being tired of always being the sex symbol and that she wanted to be taken seriously as an actress. She's proven this already at this point. She's fighting to be taken as a serious actress. There's even a Broadway play that was made to make fun of her, where Jane Mansfield who was another bombshell of the day, plays this dumb blonde actress that starts her own production company. She also had Lee Strasberg and his wife Paula there for her, teaching her acting uh, and being at her beck and call. Paula traveled with her when filming, like she was there, but Paula pushed the whole method acting, which method acting can be really, really great for those who can use it and use it right, but some people use this and get into this, oh, God, they can be put into really bad mental status during those times. You look at people like um, Jim Carrey's done it, Christian Bale's done it, uh, Heath Ledger did it, and that's what ultimately led to his downfall. You know, you, you get some of these people that go through this method acting where it's like, well, I need to be this character. I need to become this character and I'm going to live as this character for X amount of time, you know, or I'm going to lock myself in a room for, you know, weeks and become a recluse or months and become a recluse, or I'm going to put myself in a position where I lose six, 60, 70 pounds and look like I'm anorexic or, you know, and they do these different things and it's, it's, it's crazy. But this is what she started to do. She wanted to become these people. She wanted to become these characters. Because of all this, and all the changes she's making, after nine months of marriage to Joe DiMaggio, she files for divorce. However, during, during all this process, she's continuing the relationship 
um, while also having relationships with actors like Marlon Brando and a playwright, Arthur Miller, who would later become her third husband. There are so many things, so many people that she was involved with all at the same time. Now, I don't remember exactly what year it was, and I, but I know I need to just go ahead and throw this in here somewhere. She even was responsible for Ella Fitzgerald becoming the iconic singer that she became. You know, when Ella Fitzgerald went to the specific club and was like, hey, I'm going to work here, they didn't realize that she was a woman of color. So they were like, no, 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 I'm not going to do this. Well, Marilyn Monroe walks in and says, no. You give her the slot, and I'll come and show up every single night. They wound up sold out, because not only was Ella Fitzgerald this amazing singer, but Marilyn Monroe was going to be there. So Ella Fitzgerald, in her biographies, would even say, you know, thank you to her, because if it had not for her, been for her, for her doing that, I would never would have been able, been able to be something. She also did similar things like that for Dorothy Dandridge and became friends with Dorothy Dandridge, who was an amazing actress and singer. Now, an affair between Monroe and Miller became increasingly serious after October of 1955 when her divorce was finalized and he separated from his wife. Now, the studio urged her to end it as Miller was being investigated by the FBI for allegations of communism at the time. He had actually been subpoenaed by the House of Un-American Activities Committee, but Marilyn actually refused to aid in that, like, to become part of that. Like, she would, she was by his side, like, nope, you know, I trust him, like, you know, whatever. So the relationship actually led to the FBI opening a file on her and keeping a file on her and starting to bug her house and things like that. Like, this was done from that time up until 1962. By the year's end, she and, and Fox signed another set, a seven-year contract, and she finally had a say in things that happened to her on, on her films. She had done so much that people started to say that she was a shrewd she was shrewd as a, as a businesswoman. Like, she had to have say. She gave them a list of directors that she would work with. That there were only so many that she would work with. Now, on June 29th of that year, Monroe and Miller were married in a Westchester County court um, in White Plains, New York. Two days later, had a Jewish ceremony with his family. She then converted to Judaism herself. Now, due to Monroe's status as a sex symbol and Miller's image as an intellectual, the media saw the union as very mismatched. Here you got this smart guy who writes, you know, plays and all sorts of things, and you got this dumb blonde bombshell. And that's how they look at, look at it. And there was even a um, an article in Variety with the headline, Egghead Weds Hourglass. So it really showed what they thought about them. Now, August of 1956, she began production on The Prince and the Showgirl in England with Sir Lawrence Olivier. She chose him as one of the directors that she would work with. So he signed on and he's like, heck yeah, you know, let's, let's do this. 
Now, there were tons of conflicts on this film, from her timeliness to her ability to remember the lines. And he had also directed the movie um, and starred in it. So, he had a lot of say, unfortunately, as well. And he was very spiteful. He had a lot of things to say to her, like, all you have to do is be sexy. And, you know, why can't you just remember your lines? Why is this so hard for you? Oh, he was awful to her. However, it showed she had issues with pills and alcohol. And also, during this time period, she had yet another miscarriage. Now, I haven't talked about the miscarriages so much in the past. But I believe that this was another issue that she had had with DiMaggio. Now, before this, who knows? Because before this, she wasn't married, you know, after leaving Jimmy Daughtry, you know, and who knows that she may have had some with him. Like, we don't, we really don't know. I do know that she begged him to have a baby and he said, no, you're too young. You wait a little while and then we'll start talking about kids. Um, but with Joe DiMaggio, I believe she had had a miscarriage or two uh, with him. I know there was mention of at least one um you know, but she has a miscarriage while she's in this show with, uh, um, or doing this, this movie, The Prince and the Showgirl. Now, the movie received mixed reviews, didn't do well in the U.S. However, it did well in Europe, and she was awarded in Italy and France. Now, Marilyn decides at this point to take an 18-month hiatus to concentrate on her family life. But she and Miller split shortly after this. During all this, she has had an ectopic pregnancy, which was mid-1957, and a year later had another miscarriage. Now, it stated that she suffered from endometriosis, which caused a lot of fertility issues for her. She was then hospitalized due to a barbiturate overdose. I think she was very, very depressed about losing these babies, and all she wanted was to be a good wife, um, you know, but, you know, there's a lot of pressure put on her at this point, because it's like, all right, you've taken this break, now you need to come back. So, in 1958, she comes back as Sugar Cane in Some Like It Hot, another beautiful, iconic movie that actually turned out to be one of her best-known movies. Now, there was a lot of issues here as well, because even though you can't tell by watching, you know, there were a lot of issues with her remembering her lines, a lot of issues with, you know, takes, and Tony Cur- Curtis even go- goes as far as stating that kissing her was like kissing Hitler due to the number of retakes they had, they had to do since she, again, was having all these issues. She dismissed it as stating that it wasn't like she had a phallic symbol to lose. The ordeals during this movie made her state her stage fright so much worse that she and she even ad-libbed scenes to her liking. Her performance earned her a Golden Globe for Best Actress. She busted her ass on that film, regardless of the stresses in her life and re- regardless of the issues that she had with substances. Now, after Some Like It Hot, she took another break until later in the year where she starred in Let's Make Love with Yves Montand. She was disappointed with parts of the script because Arthur Miller, her husband, 
had written these parts. Well, she considered them kind of weak. So he, she had him rewrite these parts. She only did the movie due to her Fox contract. And it seems she had another affair with Montan. This movie didn't have the success that the others did and was released in 1960. She actually even had been up for the, ri- the role of Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but the part obviously went over to Audrey Hepburn. They were worried that she would complicate the production so that she was passed over. They were so worried that it was going to, you know, push into overproduction or that she was going to have issues or she was going to cause issues with her, her castmates, so they pass on her. You know, can you imagine Holly Golightly being somebody other than Audrey Hepburn and to be Marilyn Monroe of all people? It's, it's wild to think of. Now, the last movie that she actually completed was that of The Misfits by John Huston, who is Angelica Huston's father. Um, this, again, was written by Arthur Miller, so she could have a dramatic role playing a divorcee who befriends three aging cowboys. At this point, the marriage with Miller was pretty much over. And he was in a new relationship with a set photographer, um, Inga Morath. Um, Monroe was livid about the role of this character, and it was loosely based on her life. She had a bit of health issues at this time, um, including pain from gallstones, and her drug addiction was so bad that they ha- would have to do makeup on her, while she was knocked out. She was so dependent that they had to do makeup on her when she was asleep. Now in August, she was put into a hospital to detox. The Misfits movie failed and she and Miller divorced at that point. Now in early 1961, she spent six months preoccupied by health issues. She had her gallbladder removed and endured a surgery for her endometriosis. Now at this point, she was told that she needed to go to a hospital for some R&R. You know, her, her shrink says, you know, yeah, just, you know, we'll admit you for a little while, give you a chance to kind of really relax and focus and, and get off the stress and, you know, you, you've been detoxed already, like you don't have any issues, so let's, let's get you right. Now, I will say that in some of these later movies, you know, you can see where she was a little bit heavier. Um, Not heavy, heavy, but thicker than her earlier days and than her last couple of movies. You can see all of this. Um, So, they sign her into a hospital for some R&R. She spends four weeks in the hospital for depression. However... They really fucked her here. Because it wasn't a normal hospital like she was told. She just thought she was going to go sit on a ward and not be bothered and be able to to be stress-free. It turned out to be a psychiatric unit where she had, she had even been put into a straitjacket and, excuse me, <clears throat> straitjacket and forced to undergo awful treatments such as shock therapy, water therapies, all sorts of different things. She was so upset by this, and she would beg people, like, no, this is not what I'm here for. I'm supposed to be just taking a break. Like, I'm not supposed to be doing all this. This is not what I'm here for. So, she's able to sneak a note to, um, like, an orderly or a nurse 
that they needed to call Joe DiMaggio. He comes in there and storms in and says, let my fucking wife out of here. Get her the fuck out of here. That's my wife. She's going home with me. Which I got to say was pretty fucking touching because even though they had divorced after nine months of marriage, he still considered her his wife. He never married again after her. Never. He never quit loving her. They rekindled their friendship. Um, and, you know, there's rumors that they actually had kind of rekindled their relationship as well. And Marilyn was known to have dated or spent time with Frank Sinatra. Um, members of the Rat Pack is where I'm going to say that. Because we don't know exactly who she did and did not have relations with. Um, you know, and, and at this point she moves back to California where she bought a house at, at, uh, 12305 5th Helena Drive in Brentwood early in 1962. At this time she had actually dropped 20 pounds and had actually begun shooting Something's Gotta Give with Dean Martin. However, again with this movie, there are movies straight out the gate. Days before filming, she caught sinusitis. The doctors said that she, they'd have to wait on production, um, you know, to start because she had to get better and that she was too sick to, to work. It took six weeks to get over it and it was alleged that she was faking. And on May 19th, she made sure that regardless of how she felt, she would take a break to sing Happy Birthday, Mr. President, to JFK at his birthday celebration at Madison Square Garden in New York. This famous performance in her skin-tight, sheer beige dress, which was covered in rhinestones, where she was sewn into it backstage. I mean, hell, it was so sheer that she kept covered until it was time to perform. Now, they played a joke. You know, we don't know if it was just her not wanting to come out on stage because at this point it even got out into the press that she was having is issues with her timeliness. So Peter Lawford, who was brother-in-law to JFK, a couple of times, I think it was him that, that tried to introduce her, I think it was four times before she finally came out on stage. And it was about the time where the cake finally got rolled out. Well, this was a lot more breathy than normal. And people, people gave her a lot of flack. Oh, you're too sick to, to, you know, to act for this, this part. But you're not too sick to go and sing for the president. So what I'll say here with that is that we know that she was not well. And when you see her do that, you can hear it in her voice that she's out of breath, that she's having issues with this. To have sinusitis and to have all these, she's trying to get over it at this point. She's still having issues with her breathing at this point. And you can hear that. Now, her performance was to hint that she had, um, she had had an affair with JFK. This was her pretty much saying to him, like, you're going to acknowledge me. And you're going to acknowledge the fact that we've had this relationship. I don't give a fuck that you're president. You're going to acknowledge this. So her going out there in this dress, and let me tell you, there have been multiple people who have seen or touched that dress. It was sheer. It left 
nothing to the imagination. Now, you couldn't see that in photographs back in those days. You couldn't see that in that black and white filming of his birthday thing. But when they were right on her, they could see it all. They could see everything. Now, we'll talk a little more about her relationship with JFK, as well as his brother Bobby, as well as a few others that we hear she apparently had affairs with. We'll, we'll speak a little bit more of that in the uh, fourth episode about the conspiracies and things, because it has a lot to do with that. So it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. Now, as she continued filming, she had a scene to do where she was swimming naked in a pool. Now, I've seen some of this. I've seen some clips from this. The press was invited to take photos, and this was later published in Life as the first time that a major star has po had posed nude at the height of their career. Now, she again went on to leave for a few days due to sickness, um, but Fox realized that they were struggling to make this movie as well as Cleopatra at the same time, as they were filming that with Elizabeth Taylor at the time. So on June 7th, they fire Marilyn and sue her for $750,000 in damages. She is then replaced by Lee Remick on the movie, but Dean Martin refused to make the movie with anybody but Marilyn. So Fox sued him as well and shut down the movie production. They even started rumors that Marilyn was... Marilyn Monroe was mentally disturbed. It wasn't long before they decided to settle with a new contract and recommenced um, Something's Gotta Give and gave her the starring role in What a Way to Go, which was to release in 1964. They were also in the talks of her starring in a, in a biopic of Jean Harlow, who again was her like, icon. That's who she looked up to. Now, there's a problem with this here. You know, you see some images from the, from the, the life shoot. You see some different things there. You can see that she was pretty, you know, in control over Interviews and things like that. She was good at interviews. She was good at charming people. You know, but you can also see when she started having issues with the drugs again. Now, in order to repair her pub public image, she engaged in a few public ventures, including interviews for Life and Cosmopolitan, as well as her first photo shoot for Vogue. Now, photographer Bert Stern come in, comes in to do two series of photographs. A fashion shoot and another, which was nude. Unfortunately, these would be published posthumously. That's going to lead us into episode three. Now, I do want to mention a couple of things about all of this. Because as we saw, she had lost a lot of weight. Um, she was only five, five and a half, five, six, which is actually my height. Um, and 
you know, was a size 14 in their standard. Size 14 in their standard today would probably be maybe a size 6 in today's standard. So she was never big. She was curvy, but she was never big. And she did have a little bit of a stomach on her, but that was the look back then. That was normal. You know, today, God forbid a woman have a little bit of a stomach before she gets criticized. But she did these beautiful, beautiful photos where they're talked about as the scarf photos. And you actually can see her breasts through the scarf. So you can see, you know, her in these photos. And it's she was absolutely flawlessly gorgeous. Now, knowing this, I will say she did have just a tiny bit of work done. She did have a little bit of plastic surgery at the beginning of her career where they just tapered the tip of her nose. It's the only work that she had ever had done. Um, she also, like, you can see the photos where she... She starts off, in a lot of them, very, very in control. Um, as time goes on, here she drinks a little flute of champagne, and then she starts popping pills back and everything. And you can see in the nude photos, in order for her to get through those nude photos, she was medicated. Because you can see it in her eyes in those photos. Now, when you look back at the Vogue photos, where she's in these beautiful... She beautiful dresses and her hair's done up and I love there's this one black and white shot of her where she's got her hand up at her face and she's just kind of looking off to the side and it's so serene and so beautiful she was a classic beauty there so he comes back later to do those those nude photos at, on another at another time and she looks like a totally different woman a totally different woman. And it's disturbing, in my opinion, to look at those photos. When you look at photos of her in her roles and photos of her, you know, in her home and in interviews and different things, and you go back and you look at that last photo shoot, what a world of difference. She looked like a totally different woman. So with that, it gets you thinking. I'm hoping everybody goes and starts to like look at some of these things and, and do a little bit of their own research. Um, and there were more movies in there. These were just the ones that I really kind of wanted to highlight on. There were many, many more movies that she had little bit parts or, or did um, parts with. There's one that was kind of like a Western that, that I saw bits and pieces of that she was just... Oh, man, was she gorgeous. So, you know, look at all of those things. Tell me what you feel about it. Tell me what you think. Um, again, if you have anything to, you know, discuss, you can email me at SerialZombieMoms at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Facebook. Um, I'll be more than happy to respond. Um, and I am aware that there are um, no photos that have come up with the last couple of episodes uh, had somebody that was supposed to be helping me with that, and I unfortunately did not get done. So I will be working on that this next couple of days to get um, all of those photos, you know, uploaded so that all of these episodes have um, 
reference photos to go back to. So uh, if anybody has any concerns, any issues, any comments, any suggestions, anything like that, please, um, please let me know. I'd be more than happy to, to consider all of that. So um, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. The next episode of this is obviously going to um, surround her mysterious death. And then, of course, episode four will go into the conspiracies surrounding that death. So I hope you guys enjoyed, and I will see you on the next one.